0: It's over. Your spouse has finally crossed the line. Your fear of the unknown, front and center. But here's the good news. I'm Kevin Caldwell, and we help our clients
1: relieve that stress and anxiety. Let our team of experienced family attorneys work through the process with you, so you don't have to go it alone. So if you're facing divorce or child custody
2: issues, Caldwell Law Group is ready to help you find your freedom. Now serving Central New York with our Syracuse location, visit caldwell-law.com.
1: Welcome to Garden Views, interesting conversations with interesting people who have done and or are doing interesting things. So sit back and enjoy. Welcome everyone into Garden Views, and on this episode we're going to be pursuing something called government ethics, and I say pursuing it because it seems like it's hard to catch. And our guest today is Suzanne Munson, and she's going to educate us on something uh, that uh, was referred to as the Virginia Way, and uh, some of the work that she's done on a gentleman named George Wythe, who uh, I've heard the name, I'm sure most people haven't, but uh, maybe was the uh, Socrates or Plato, if you will, of American jurisprudence and and government civics. Um, But without further ado, I want to say... Hello and greet uh, Suzanne Munson. Thank you for coming into Garden Views and welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Jeff.
1: Sure. Um, I guess before we get started with the crux, why don't you tell uh, the audience a little bit about yourself?
2: Well, I retired from the um, corporate world and nonprofit world uh, about 10 years ago. And the day I decided to leave, I said, oh boy, I can do this book I've been wanting to do for so long. And that was a biography of um, Thomas Jefferson's teacher, his primary mentor, uh, George Wythe, who was a founding father, but he's called the forgotten founding father because he never ran for a high office and he didn't have children to keep his legacy going. Um, but he was very, very important in, in getting America off to the right start after the revolution. And um, so he had, has a great story and I wanted to tell it. Because it's important for today. He was a very ethical person, and he believed in, in the ideal of the ethical public servant in government.
1: And did he found or wasn't the first law school in the United States named after him?
2: Yes, um... Lawyers, of course, we always we still have our jokes about lawyers, but they were um, really held in very low esteem uh, before the American Revolution, before America's first collegiate law school was founded. And as a matter of fact, Virginia being the first colony, the oldest colony, um, about 50 years after the colony was formed, lawyers were, um, were disbarred from courthouses because the the worst sort had come over from london to prey on the innocent colonists and uh, and so the uh the training of lawyers was mostly by apprenticeship only the very wealthy could send their sons to england to learn english law uh, being most of the colonies being english so it was a, a huge um breakthrough uh, to form America's first law school, and that was in Williamsburg in 1779 at the College of William and Mary, which was is the second oldest college in America after Harvard.
1: Ah, of course, Harvard. Always getting in there first.
2: Um, yeah, but Harvard, I got to get a little dig in about Harvard here. Um, Harvard's law school didn't start until 30 years later. And so they claim to be the oldest law school in America. But in the fine print, it's in, in continuous operation. Ah, there's a okay. little proviso there.
1: I see. So there's the, a loophole. Uh, law
2: school at the College of Women. Mary was the first and the oldest, but it, it was interrupted by uh, two wars and some economic um, deprivation.
1: Aha. All right. So we get to the truth of that. So. All right. So I, I know that uh, you noted that uh, with I pronounced a wife earlier, which is, of course because what happens when you only read a name and that, and not actually hear of a name before, or perhaps somebody mispronounced it to me in my past. But uh, seems to have educated Jefferson, uh, Monroe, uh, John Marshall. I mean, uh, John Adams. I mean, the, these these names are the who's who. This these are the, the signatories to the Declaration of Independence, the uh, first Supreme Court Justice, presidents. So um, I don't I don't know. I guess it's your story to tell, who who do you want to start with? But I I know that that you focus on Jeffersonian democracy. So maybe we'll start with Jefferson, Jefferson.
2: Yes, uh, with educated either directly or indirectly uh, influenced um, the um, the first Virginia presidents of the United States. He was a a friend of George Washington's and they were uh, about the same age. And uh, he was Washington's personal uh, lawyer, and he held us back uh, when when With uh, was in the uh, Virginia legislature and in other uh, in the Continental Congress. He made sure that uh, Washington was funded for the wars that he was engaged in, and uh, so he directly influenced Thomas Jefferson. He was Jefferson's most important mentor, and Jefferson met him when he was just a. Um, Uh, An unruly, well, I won't say unruly, but kind of a wayward college student. Um, He was away from home. His home was more than 100 miles away. Uh, He had very little supervision. And uh, if you read some of his letters to his grandchildren, he, he will say that, yes, he could have easily gotten off on the wrong foot. He was hanging out at the racetrack with card sharps and jockeys and so on. And so in a letter to his grandson, he said, you know, I had a decision to make. Who was I going to be like? Was I going to be like the the racetrack jockeys or was I going to hang out there and make my life there? And uh, a lot of the students that he was with at Wayman Mary were rich planter's sons, and they planned to go back and play cards and run their farm and not engage particularly in higher politics and so on or government affairs. Um, So, uh, he had had a profound influence on Jefferson. He also taught um, Chief Justice John Marshall, who was one of the most influential chief justices in in, uh, American history. And um, Henry Clay came under his influence. Uh, Clay is kind of being forgotten now, but he was um, tremendously influential congressman and senator right before the Civil War. He was called the Great Compromiser. But he had a high sense of ethics. And um, so, with taught at, at his law school, he turned his law school into a training program for statesmen. And he wanted his students to be more than just lawyers, just members of a profession. And uh, most of them enrolled in his law school um, to make money, you know, go home, make money, open up a law firm. Uh, The Shingle would would read, you know, student of the great George With, and and so the career would go on from there. But he uh, encouraged them, he inspired them uh, to become ethical public servants. Uh, to lead the new country because after the revolution, we were reinventing ourselves. And Virginia was one of the first to reinvent itself, even though the war was far from being won, but set up a new court system, new educational system, uh, new constitution. And so there were offices opening up at the national level and at the state level. They needed to be filled by well-educated individuals and beyond that, by ethically motivated individuals. There were also many positions opening up in the judiciary. Uh, the Supreme Court was brand new. The federal judgeships were brand new. The state level judgeships were uh, being um, created, uh, new positions. And so who was gonna fill those jobs? You know, Who was trained to operate within a new democratic Republic, nobody had ever operated within a democratic republic before. We had always been ruled by aristocrats and kings and queens.
1: Well, I can hear members of the audience out there. I, I can hear their voices and their thoughts already, and I just want to let people know that we are going to judge these men uh, you know partly in the context of their times, but mostly for their their government. Uh, Ethical approaches, their statesmanship, their civic, so to speak. We're not going to judge them today on if they were slaveholders and if they were uh, adulterers and and uh, you know if it was a rich man's club. Uh, the audience is free to do so. We are all free to do so. And make those judgments, but right today we're going to be talking about ethics and government, and we're going to try to separate those, or at least that you know where we are purposely avoiding those issues because that's not the conversation for today. We're not ignoring them and you know saying they did not exist. They clearly existed. We know that there were slaveholders. We know that they were, they were adulterers. We know that that people did not, you know, recognize their children and that, that you know it might sound weird to some people to call certain people ethical while they uh, didn't subscribe to you know maybe ethics of their own religions and you know and and certainly not the ethics of our time but we're we're going to judge them on the building a government kind of a civics one o one level I hope that is clear and I hope that helps things out um going forward um because we do want to take this in the context of you know, today. And what's been, you know, not when I say today, I don't mean June 6, 2023 when we're recording this. I mean, you know, in our modern era where so many of our guardrails have been pushed or tested and so many are still being tested. Um, And I think one of the things we've learned in the last, you know, half dozen years or so is just how much depends on the good faith of people, how much depends on, an honor code. Um, Instead of using crafty interpretations, we've learned something called the Emoluments Clause and learned that maybe it doesn't mean anything. Uh, We're having a a conflict right now as to whether or not the Presidential Records Act uh, over or supersedes commander-in-chief status. I mean, all sorts of things that, that never... It would have been thought that we have governors, you know, busing uh, undocumented uh, or illegal aliens, whatever term you want to use, busing them and flying them into other states, and then other governors and mayors are sort of shooting back, and there's all sorts of craziness going on that, you know, it seems medieval, but it's happening right now, and you know, maybe it's because we have a that lack of civility is sort of tied directly to a lack of ethics. So that that's my little spiel. Um, but what what do you think of all that, uh, Suzanne?
2: Well, that's a really good point, um, Jeff. Um, I think we need to separate uh, conduct, conduct in public office versus conduct at home. Um, yes, most of the founding fathers, uh, at least from the South, uh, did own slaves. Uh Thomas Jefferson was an ardent abolitionist in his youth, and he actually proposed laws to end slavery gradually. And they were shout, literally shouted down, and it was would be impossible for the Virginia General Assembly to ever pass a law, even gradually freeing slaves. It was ingrained, not only in the South, but in the North, um, the Lords of the Loom, um, The textile manufacturers were dependent on the lords of the lash in the South. The whole country was involved in it. So let's say, and of course, it is true that owning slaves, in in our point of view, was a sin. It was a sin. But we're all sinners. And even sinners can do great things in other parts of their lives. So we don't want to forget the enormous contributions that these people made to to making this a free country today for formerly enslaved people. You know, uh, formerly enslaved people are freer today than most of the people in the rest of the world by virtue of what the Founding Fathers did for everyone. Uh, But it took a while, you know, for that to be extended to females as well as to people of color. Uh, Females were left out of the system too and also denigrated for their intellect. Got to remember that, but these men were products of their time. But that doesn't uh, that doesn't negate the good things that they did. I mean, that's intellectually dishonest to throw everybody under the bus for one sin or several sins.
1: Yeah, I have found that part of the my opinion, anyways, part of the uh, lack of civility and the polarization of our nation, our politics is that simply a lot of people don't understand the basic civics, basically the The separation of powers. What What's the difference between Article One, Article Two, and Article Three? What's What does federalism mean? Um, and part of it is that you know we sort of left the monarchy and sort of been slipping and sliding ever closer to trying to create a new one. And we created federalism, but have you know more and more? There's more and more demands. And a lot of them are are very good intentioned. Public health, voting rights, equal rights. Um, you know uh fair commerce things like that that, that that you know get federalized and and then it gets very confusing when you have different state laws and you know federalism is important uh or states rights are important when states rights are important uh, federal supremacy is is important when federal supremacy is important and depending on your viewpoints on certain issues you know there's there's very little ideological consistency with it but just beyond that a lot of people th- say well the president should be able to do this well no the president can't necessarily do this congress has to do this or congress has to do that for it to be lasting or permanent uh when when should the courts intervene when shouldn't they intervene um and things like that and i i think that a lot of people just don't understand the the separation of powers and the and the uh framework for by which the, the our constitutional Uh, system was built, you know, it's not a pure democracy, it's a democratic republic. I think a lot of people don't understand what that is. I think a lot of people eschew the idea of, you know, land having value over people per se, you know, two senators uh, per per state, no matter how many people are in it, things of that nature. And, you know, the framers, they, they codified all this and did most of it on purpose. And their arguments and their thoughts are, well-documented in in places like the federal papers and footnotes and and all sorts of writings um but it's a pain to read all that and it's also written in a kind of English which is not modern English it's it's very heady and it's heavy language so you know again I guess that was a little bit of a speech on my part um but I, I think it's probably a, a natural segue into probably the bulk of your presentation
2: well I was lucky um I had But I think, I know a semester, and it might have been a year of government in high school, I had a good government teacher, and I learned about the separation of powers. And uh, we've had some presidents who have never understood the separation of powers, and people in Congress as well. Uh, I think we, you know, we've had some people up there in Washington who are fairly poorly educated about how the government works. And, um, you know, there's a test to be a plumber, there's a test to be an electrician, there's a test to be um, almost anything that you can think of that has to do with public safety, engineering. Um, There should be a test for people who run for Congress and even maybe for the presidency. They should be schooled in the Constitution in the separation of powers. Uh, it was very, very important for the Founding Fathers to have separation of powers, or else one branch of government would run away with everything. If you didn't have some um, controls on the presidency, uh, easily we could have had a dictatorship any number of times. If you didn't have two Houses of Congress, um, the House of Representatives could go crazy on a... and. and have no uh, rails, uh, but fortunately the bills have to go to the Senate, which is known as the cooling place for maybe some hotheads in the House, and uh, so you have a balance of power, and, and then you have this the uh, court system, and if you can't get redress anywhere else, you should get redress in an impartial court system, and here we get back to ethics. The court said court uh, judges should be impartial. They shouldn't run on party lines as they are doing now in many states. That's an abomination.
1: Right. So you noted uh, four main topics that you want to talk about. And one was a lack of ethics, which, you know, you think would speak a little bit for itself. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that you have some examples that you want to uh, lend us and then maybe point out how, you know, some of the people that you wrote about would have Treated some of these items, but anyway, I don't want to, you know, hijack your presentation. So the first topic is a lack of ethics.
2: Yes, well, I I identified four um, concerns that our founding fathers would have about our uh, government today. Um, a lack of ethics being one. Um, uh, it's very easy for somebody to come into Congress um, as a middle class person and end up as a very wealthy person. Right. How does that happen? Oh, um, there's a um, congresswoman, uh, Abigail Spenberger, who I happen to have a great regard for, has a bill in Congress right now uh, that would make it illegal for um, people in Congress and uh, senators to uh, deal in stocks. You know, they get tips ahead of, way ahead of time and ahead of big actions. on the stock market and lots of them have cashed in on that and so she has a bill to make that harder for self-dealing right and we all know that self-dealing goes on and it has gone on in congress for many many generations congress was very corrupt in the end of the 19th century and um there was some cleanup of that and uh civil service and so on but um so it's not new and um but we, we need to address it. And uh, another thing the Founding Fathers would be totally concerned about, and this, this sort of ties in with the first uh, issue, and that is the decline of journalism in this country. Um, daily newspapers have been going out of business, and local newspapers have been going out of business for some time, and that is a very, very frightening prospect. Uh, freedom of the Press, Was is embedded in our First Amendment. It was something that Jefferson and the other founding fathers held very dear to the future success of this democratic republic. Um, When newspaper staffs are gutted, as they have been by the uh, vulture capitalists, venture capitalists, vultures I call them, um, if you have fewer investigative reporters, you're going to have less corruption. Revealed to the public by public officials or even just stupid mistakes, you know, it doesn't have to be corruption, just right. be stupidity. But if people aren't reporting on the government and if people aren't reading the reports, that's another problem. People are kind of zoning out They're on TikTok instead of, you know, reading the newspaper or listening to the news. Um, so it's, it's really very, very alarming what's happening with our, our journalism today, not just the decline of the daily newspaper and the decline of investigative reporting, but also a decline in truthfulness. And um, we all know that certain stations have gotten into big trouble for not telling the truth. They've had um, lawsuits and they've mm-hmm. lost those lawsuits fairly. Uh, not naming any names but we all know who we're talking about
1: sure um, and um, also
2: recently the um, the heads the chief gurus of um, the techno technical world have put out an alarm about artificial intelligence and in future elections um, they say there's a very real probability that um, images will be manipulated um, what people are saying will be manipulated and it will look like the truth, but it won't be the truth and nobody will be able to tell one thing from another. They say that is a great danger that we're facing.
1: Yeah. That technology is already there.
2: This is fake news on steroids and we should be very alarmed about it and there should be ways to counter it. There should be truth monitors. If you can trust the truth monitors. Um,
1: that's a problem but, uh, <laughs> and, and people
2: are listening to a lot of garbage, you know on social media. There's a lot of um, very untruthful stuff being said on social media
1: oh sure I mean and and the decline of respect for the media because of some of the things that they've done to themselves by acting in in such ways and 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 printing poor stories or being so partisan, they've driven a lot of the audience to find other sources, and so they rely on. You know, some some guy or gal on on YouTube, um, you know, that may or may not have the degrees that they say they have or, you know, an Alex Jones rises or whatever the case may be. But, uh, you know, I I I follow ratings and TV pretty closely, and it it seems like Fox News currently is is the only network that that consistently has in the millions that CNN is around three or four hundred thousand, you know, on average uh MSNBC is about 70,000 less than that and Newsmax is is around the same uh, as MSNBC uh AON went out of business and NPR I don't even know that there's numbers for that um now I don't know about the the, the major networks you know ABC CBS NBC and and regular broadcast Fox um but uh the, you're right people are you know they're they're not even watching TV anymore. They've moved to other sources, be it social media. And, you know, I, I guess it's who polices the police. You said that the, you know, who, who who's going to believe that the truth minders, you know, who do you That's find? Right.
2: Well, one thing uh, in the 20th century, schools of journalism uh, were developed across the country at major universities. And those who majored in journalism were taught to be objective. They were taught that you should not slant the news according to your opinion and this was a rule and also um a, a young reporter who might make mistakes was always had editors to catch the mistakes uh, and to vet for the truth that is uh, is going by the wayside you know you probably you have a lot of people who are not trained in journalism they're not trained in journalism ethics you know they think it's okay to slant things according to their own perspective Right. Because their perspective is the right one, and the way everybody
1: should think. Well, they're a publicly traded company, and they have shareholders to answer to. I mean, they, they, which, exactly, which overrules the truth. I mean, it's it's a news business, um, which maybe maybe is the problem. But even even the not-for-profit NPR, which is supposedly a not-for-profit, I mean, it, it you know it it seems to, or its its rap is that it has a liberal bias.
2: Yeah, well, um, you know, there's a certain channel that throws out red meat all the time, and it loves keeping people agitated uh, about one thing or another. And if it's not truthful, they'll make up something. Um, you know, people need to be very careful where they get their information. I I find it quite difficult to talk to people who get their information from questionable sources because they think that, that there's is the is the truthful source, and you know my sources aren't. Although I try to stick with the sources that are as objective as possible and less partisan.
1: Yeah, I I what I try to do is find you know I I try and do the same as you, but because it's hard to tell who's less partisan, I I try to listen to the admittedly partisan sides on both sides and. If I listen to enough of those and and enough that you know believe that they're centrist, somewhere in there you're gonna find a truth or or at least the argument that you agree with. But it's too easy to uh plant yourself in an in echo chamber, you know, to sort of parrot your beliefs. Um and it it you know and a lot of people do that even thinking they're exposing themselves to a lot of sources of information, it's just they're listening to the different voices but with the same types of uh, views or opinions. But the media, I mean as much as it certainly is part of it the media still is private so i mean government ethics uh you know it, you know is public uh, and that's why i brought up npr because it is it is you know to an extent uh, semi public i know it's semi not um but it, it had the uh imprimatur of being uh you know uh, publicly funded um but you're right uh, the, the ethics in journalism has left uh we want to be as objective and down the middle as possible we want to tell the truth into we want to tell our audience what our audience wants to hear or we want to tell our audience what we want our audience to believe
2: yeah well it's interesting um freedom of the press as i said as we all know is embedded in the first amendment and the the constitution would not have been ratified in virginia and in some other states without the bill of rights because Patrick Henry and other others feared an overwhelming, overpowerful federal government, and individual rights were extremely important to th- those founding fathers. Right. And so, uh, another Virginia founding father, James Madison, who's called the father of the Constitution, made sure that the ten, the first ten amendments, the Bill of Rights, were added to the Constitution. But it would, uh, the Constitution would would be have been a failure without the promise of the future edition of a bill of rights but getting back to freedom of the press jefferson was very much for that but it did bite him uh in, in a major way um and and this goes back to some of his less ethical behavior i will have to say that there were times when he uh, his standards were a little lower than they should have been but uh he had paid a man called james calendar to um to say some nasty things about his political opponent opponent, who at the time was John Adams. Um, Then uh, Jefferson was elected president and Mr. Callender uh, wanted payback. He wanted a federal job. He wanted to be postmaster somewhere. Jefferson decided that he was not the man for the job. So Mr. Callender turned turned on him and exposed his relationship with Sally Hemings, who was his alleged slave mistress. And, uh, that was a huge scandal. Uh, but even after that, and, and, and Jefferson could have maybe proposed some laws about libel and, you know, s- salacious things in the news. Uh, now John Adams had very skinned thin about criticism of public officials and, and his, um, uh, some of the laws that he proposed were, were shouted down. Um, but basically the founding fathers, even though they were bitten by freedom of the press um and some of them did have thin skins they still recognize it as a bedrock american value and that would keep us more honest than most governments in the rest of the world
1: yeah and the 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 importance press is supposed to be self-regulating because of its journalistic ethical rules and integrity and you know maybe it's fallen down on that maybe there's just too much media i don't i don't know but freedom of the press i guess includes bad press um but there's, you know, in those 10 amendments, there's, there's plenty of sub-debates in, in those first 10 as well. Um, you know, some of them are completely non-controversial, but obviously like, the Second Amendment is very controversial. Um, I don't think the no quartering of soldiers is particularly controversial, though, if it came up, it probably would be, or, or maybe it wouldn't, I don't know. But You know, but there's, uh, you know, the Fourth and Fifth Amendments, you know, uh, a little bit, a little bit less controversial, a little bit more settled. But anyway, it, it's you know, no one's quite sure what the Tenth Amendment means. Um, so uh, you know, it, obviously, it was this is all part of a, a grand compromise, and the American experiment is still ongoing and is still trying to find you know a balance between well, chaos and order, uh, basically, and the you know, liberty and and you know, uh, a freedom from you know sort of anarchy. But anyway, there there are. Uh, we're probably not going to settle that here, but there were other issues that I know that, uh, that you raised as concerns. And one was, it's, it's tied into this, which is, uh, you know, you have extreme media. You also have extreme party politics. I don't know which is the chicken or which is the egg. Um, I, 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 you know, I'm 54, so I've lived through a bunch. I'm going to say the extreme politics came before the extreme media, uh, but perhaps I'm wrong.
2: Yeah, you're probably right. Um, now, um, during the time that, um, the man I wrote about George with was in public office, he was attorney general of, um, the colony of Virginia, and he was speaker of the house, uh, of the legislature in Virginia. During that time, uh, partisan politics had not raised its ugly head that started, um, uh, during probably the second term of George Washington's term. And uh, then it got really, really ugly, you know, between um, the federalists and the state's rights people and the people of various persuasions. And, um, and, and those politics during, during those early days were were pretty vicious uh, as was the, the media. And um, so, but I'm concerned. I, I just, I've been seeing a lot of political signs here where I live in, in Virginia and I live in, in, in a county and in, in Virginia, the county government is run by, um, it's, uh, according to districts and each district has a supervisor. So I'm seeing all these, uh, signs for Republican supervisors and democratic supervisors. And honestly, that should not be a factor. I mean, You need a good supervisor who has a good business head and common sense and will do the right thing for the people. A supervisor can't do anything about these hot issues like abortion or anything else. You know, they don't have that power. So, uh, you know, but but people are going to vote for party lines. And I know people who will only vote for a Republican. And back in the old days, I used to know people who would only vote for a Democrat. They were called yellow dog Democrats. Um, and and it, so, um, you know, people are very, very rigid now about their, their party affiliations. And I have to tell one friend, I said, hey, there's good Democrats and bad Democrats. There's good Republicans and bad, Demo- bad Republicans. And you need to be discerning. You need to think critically. Well, that was a new thought to him. He was, he was only going to vote one way, no matter who the person was. And um, I don't, you know, I'm an independent voter. I vote for the lesser of two evils or the best man or woman.
1: Right. Yeah. And uh, People sometimes say, oh, it's a binary choice. You're going for the lesser of two evils. Well, yeah. I, I mean, so, sometimes it is. Um, and, you know, and, and that's life. You know, you can't let the perfect be the enemy of the good um, or the better. Uh, so in some of the other items i mean what you were just talking about with the supervisors you you had a section about judges as well and you know some judges are elected and that makes them politicians uh which also applies to sheriffs and things like that which is you know sort of troublesome but i was thinking you know here you know if they're appointed it's the same problem they they just have to be they, they just have to declare their loyalty sort of to the governor or or so they're still in politics either way it's politically tainted is there any sort of objective way to appoint judges? Are there any States that do that, do, that don't have elections or a governor appoints? And there's some other, you know, like the, the bar association or or some committee between the bar association and local officials and, or, or bipartisan, some, some third way to do it. that's better. Um,
2: you can find this online. I went online, um, to find out which states elect their judges and which states, um, appoint them. And, um, and you can, you can, of course, if you live in a state like Texas, you know, that the judges are running for election because they've got their ads all over the place right. and you know, that some judges are running as Republicans and some judges are running as Democrats. That's just flat out wrong. Um, a judge should be objective. A judge, we all have our biases and we can't pretend that we don't, but you should have the best qualified, best educated judge and the judge with the best temperament, the best judicial temperament on the bench. Now, in Virginia, uh, there was a lot of dialogue and I have it in my first book, which is uh, called Jefferson's Godfather. That's about George Wythe. Uh, There are letters exchanged between George Wythe and his former student, Thomas Jefferson, about what the judiciary should look like and they were talking about the temperament of judges and that judges should be um, appointed for life assuming good behavior you can get rid of a a judge who's gone off the rails Um, but if they don't have to run for reelection they're more likely to be objective Uh, if they're worried about um, offending somebody and not getting elected the next time Uh, that will be a factor Um, if somebody had has given them a great big fat campaign contribution that will be a factor when um, that person's business comes up before the judge Uh, this is another thing that needs to be reported and probably will go unreported in the future but uh yeah i think there there should be ways to impartially select judges i think this is really really important because the uh, the recent poll said that people are losing faith in the Supreme Court because it has become partisan. Um, in the back room, these judges are saying, yes, I will vote such and such a way. They say they don't, but they're they are being vetted in the back room for sure. Uh, and, and increasingly, the, there are partisan views being held there that when the people should be more objective and abide by uh Solid law, but yeah I, I if I were doing it, I would have um like in a state state like Virginia, we've got several law schools that are well regarded, and I would have um a committee uh, of, uh, of uh, law school deans and professors and um you know and then representatives from both parties, but the better representatives lawyers um, you know who are well regarded. And um, just try to take it out of politics, and and have the, the appointment based on merit, on education, on judicial temperament. Judicial temperament is very important too. It can be done, but it's going to take a lot of effort, and and it will be hard for.
1: Basically, just honoring their public service oaths. Uh, if they actually honored the public service oaths, as as read then uh, you know they enacted that way then then it would probably get a lot closer to where you envision um yeah but a lot of system depends on a fair and free press the one that you know has the integrity that it keeps the respect of the public uh and fair and free elections uh which brings us toward our last the last point that you raised as a concern which is um we recently were bless you, at risk of not having a peaceful transfer of government for the first time in our history
2: okay uh well we're talking about the concerns of the founding fathers and uh the one of the bedrock values that they wanted for us was a peaceful trans- transition of power from one president to another one administration to another And you only have to look south of the border to see the chaos in many of the countries down there. Um, Dictatorships, um, military coups, so on. There is no stability. And the peaceful transfer of power is, is, is what they wanted most for this country, that we wouldn't be like the rest of the world, that we wouldn't be captive to dictatorships or military coups so um i think what happened on january 6th was uh, would be of tremendous concern to our founding fathers uh fortunately um the situation was in hand by the next day but it was a very bad day in the history of america
1: well i'm not sure it's exactly in hand i think that's maybe it's still simmering there uh, there's almost like a direct line from Ruby Ridge to 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 um with the the Simrain, uh, but in any event, yeah, I, I mean, and I'm actually troubled with a lot of smart people sort of poo and say, ah, it wasn't that big a deal. Uh, you, you should be worried about homeless people, or you should be worried about you know uh, the opioid crisis, and yeah, I can be worried about those things too, but I'm more worried about this the failure of the institutions of our system of government falling in those things, you know, I, I hate to say it, but there's always going to have been poor. There's always going to be homeless. But when you don't have the institutions of this government, that's that's just going to make all those things 10 times worse, 100 times worse. Who, who knows? Um, so, I mean, we no, can... Now, you
2: get back to fake news on this one. Um, some of the commentators at the time called it a walk in the park. Right. And a lot of people believe them. Right. A lot of people I know disregarded or dis, or misunderstood uh, how important that day was in this country.
1: Right. I, I know I know a lot of people still questioning things and wanting to see tapes because of the Tucker Carlson clever edits. And, you know, it's it's not satisfying enough for them that, you know, that hundreds of people have pled guilty or pleaded guilty or have been found guilty by juries of their peers who have seen video footage. Uh, you know, I guess everyone wants to be convinced for themselves because they don't trust the system anymore. And that's probably the, they don't trust the system. And at some point that, you know, the, the system does things to to give people license not to trust it. Governments act corrupt. They make mistakes. You you have Abu Ghraib. uh, You have the the weapons of mass destruction. I believe totally that Iraq had Iraq had weapons of mass destruction. Um, You know, there's there's you know all you know imperfect government, and then the exploitation of that by media and and other influencers. You know, just drove wedges where why most people might shake their head at it or think it's terrible or vote a different way. Now it's like you have to get into your corners.
2: Yeah, well, we should have a healthy distrust of our government for sure. Absolutely, but you shouldn't. Uh, but uh, you shouldn't distrust government when it's actually doing the right thing. And um, you had a president who, and you had a network who lied about an election that it was rigged. It was not rigged. That's fake news. Right. So people are, and that's undermining democracy, the the very basis of democracy, a free and fair election, to say that an election was rigged simply because you lost it. Right. And a lot of people believe that. Even some of my friends.
1: Sure. But, but this goes back a ways. And, and, and this, you know, th- that belief couldn't have happened if it wasn't for Bush v. Gore, if it wasn't for Hillary Clinton saying that she didn't lose the election. If if it wasn't for uh, Stacey Abrams, I don't think she's conceded the, her governorship election yet. I mean, this this, this was paved, you know, th- this road was paved by lesser incursions and then you know you have someone like you know uh, donald trump who you know really knows no bounds and is a more charismatic leader and has and has more purchase with a more devoted following um but the road make no mistake the road for him was paved um you know by the whole nonsense of the hanging chads and and you know and, and and the issues on both sides of the aisle you know saying you know elections at some point about 2025 20, years ago elections no longer sell elections elections got settled in lawsuits after the elections uh al gore had the grace he saw it he he would have been a, you know he was a statesman in that moment he said no i concede i don't i don't want this to go any further um a little bit but a little bit after the the start you know he might have been the cr- his, his allies might have been the crack in the dam, but they did start the crack, the fissures in the dam, which, you know, we, we've we now seen. So, you know, nobody's innocent in, in this, not Democrat, not Republican, not media, not me, you know, not, not anyone. But we, we have well, to that's try. That's
2: very true. Yeah. And I, I do think there should be concern about our voting machines. I mean, some of this concern is legitimate. Now, in Virginia, when we vote, we um, have a a paper ballot it goes through a machine and it's counted by machine but the paper ballots are kept and there's no hanging chads or anything we you know we use a pencil and we mark a piece of paper right and it's kept and um that's pretty simple i mean why can't everybody do that I, i don't think uh, a voting machine, a voting system should be entirely electronic because you can, you know, fiddle with that. Somebody
1: right. can. Right. There's hackers, there's white hat hackers, there's black yeah, hat hackers. You could
2: so. always have paper ballots. Always.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yes, it takes longer. And, and, and yes, none of us are patient anymore. But maybe that's, maybe maybe we need to uh, learn patience. Maybe uh, a long time ago, somebody taught me something. And this was from my regular life profession, but they said, you should always, when you hear something and, and you want to be outraged about, stop, pause, breathe, think, pause again, then respond. I, I think we we all sort of need that. It's it's almost like when our parents told, told us when we were little kids, you know, count to 10, you know, count to 10, cool off some. And I, I think we all need like a cooling off period, but an education as well and better behavior by some actors. I have some thoughts on it. I mean, I think the biggest problem is, aside from a lack of personal ethics, which I'm I'm not sure you can ever really change human nature, would be like some of the things you suggested, some uh, some third way of selecting judges. But I, I think if you required that all national elections were publicly financed, no exclusions, no exceptions, that would actually take a lot of money out of politics. And perhaps in that uh, public election integrity bill, would be that members of Congress could not uh, trade stocks. They, they had a blind trust. They could not lobby for, you know, five years afterwards or or, or something like no member of their nuclear family could. But whatever, whatever it is, but the public financing so that they're not constantly fundraising all the time. And that would also give rise to the viability of third, fourth, fifth, sixth parties. I'm not sure that those kinds of coalition governments Work better and neater, but at least it's more representative, um, you know. So, and at least people can say, "Oh, well, the, the it's a duopoly, and both sides they're 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 both fighting for the same interests, and it's not you or me. You can't trust either of them." Well, at least if there were five or six parties that had, uh, you know, significant numbers of of uh, elected officials in the national government, that that would simmer that down some, uh, and and maybe we could get more bills that struck a consensus, because I do think that somewhere between 60 and 80 percent of most Americans agree on, you know, large points of some of the more contentious issues, such as gun control, such as immigration um, and and tax reform. And if, if each party had a wish list of 10 things, but people only agreed on six, do a bill with that six it, it it you know and and all of these parliamentary games and procedural rules and offering of amendments and and all these rules that the majority has to scuttle something and things like that would you know could could be more fairly addressed if if the elected officials were more representative and less worried about chasing money
2: yeah we've got to find a way to get big money out of politics it's going to be really hard though because elections are expensive
1: it, well, that's true. And, you know, listen, if you asked me a few years ago, do you, do you believe in public financing of elections? I, I would find uh, like 35 year old me and younger would have found that absolutely abhorrent. Um, I would have thought that that was that was anathema to, to the system. But it's it's really the only thing I can think of to to take money out of the game and get it to a fair place. And yes, it would be harder. It will retire, require legislation which would survive strict scrutiny from the Supreme Court. But everything people want to do is hard. You know, gun control is hard because of the Second Amendment, Uh, changing the number of senators or the number of Congress people or making D.C. a state or Puerto Rico. You know, uh, all of these things are hard. They're just as hard. Um, So if you can find one thing that can, you know, maybe address the next 12 problems uh, instead of One thing that only addresses one problem, maybe that's the one hard thing to tackle. Now, it's it's my idea. That's why I think I'm so smart and why I think it's the best idea. But it might not be. Maybe maybe there's other
2: ideas. (laughs) Well, here's where I think the media could could help. In fact, some of us are trying to work on that here. Um, You know, when I turn on the local news, um, so much of it is about the latest murder or the latest 7-Eleven that gets knocked over or the latest fire car crash all that uh there is limited co- coverage of government um what's going on with city council and the board of supervisors it, it, sometimes it's real sexy and controversial and sometimes it's you know routine but um if um well uh, there's one um our newspaper i will have to credit them uh they have started and i think they've done this before with uh, a number of key questions of candidates uh and and um there were three candidates in this one article that i read and you could tell which candidates had spent some time on those questions and which candidates just blew them off and if we could have more of that more where people could compare uh the views of people that are prominent in the media and um of people have have been, have become uh, awakened now uh, out of their lethargy because of the abortion issue. It's the only issue that people on one side or the other feel strongly about. And so it has caused them to come to the polls. But before that, a lot of people were quite lethargic about other important matters. But, and they, they didn't come, you, you don't just vote in November. You should get to the June primaries, they are sometimes more important than what goes on in November. And I knew, um, and this goes back to uh, people poorly educated about how their government works. And I'll have to say, if I hadn't spent a little bit of time with the League of Women Voters, I wouldn't have known about precinct meetings, you know, because I, I don't think I was ever taught about precinct meetings. But that's grassroots, grassroots politics. And that's where um, the pro-life people, they figured out how to make the system work according to, to what how they wanted it to work. And they figured it out and they showed up and other people didn't. And um, whether you agree with them or whether you don't, they figured out how to work the system according to their point of view. And, you um, Woody Allen said 80% of life is just showing up. And that is so true of, uh, elections. And I had, um, I, there was a good candidate for governor here, several years ago, who had a lot of support. He had a lot of real important people behind him and, you know, he was a really, really good guy, but his friends <laughs> didn't show up for the June primary. They thought they could vote for him in November. They were that ignorant and these were college graduates, doctors, lawyers and so on. I wouldn't say lawyers, but you know, college graduates. They just didn't come to the June primary. He lost the primary. Hey, what happened? Oh, I don't know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, yeah, I think that we could probably discuss this forever. And you know, but I think the important the point is, is that people should maybe, you know, maybe go back and relearn civics the branches of government what does federalism mean what are the, what are the roles of the different branches of government but also to choose to inform themselves you know through a lot of ways and listen if this podcast is one of them terrific but you should absolutely not be relying on you know what i say or think to, to to be your thought. You probably shouldn't rely on what Suzanne Munson says or think to be what you know what you think. But you should listen to her. You should read her book. You should listen to me. But you should also listen to other people as well and, you know, form your own opinions and, and you know act accordingly, I suppose. Um all right. So if people want to buy your, I believe it's books plural and otherwise follow and and support you and, and follow your work, how can they do so?
2: Well, I have two books up on Amazon and online, Barnes & Noble now. Uh, by the end of the year, I hope I'll have three more. Oh. Um, the first book that I wrote was, uh, is called Jefferson's Godfather, The Man Behind the Man, or right? just Jefferson's Godfather. And that's the story of uh, Jefferson's mentor, uh, George Wythe, and, and all that he and others did to get this country off to the right start um, to form a great democratic republic. And then the second book is about Thomas Jefferson. It's called The Metaphysical Thomas Jefferson. And um, if you're are interested in metaphysics, I encourage you to take a look at that one. This is the, what uh, the, the premise is, if you could talk to Thomas Jefferson, if you could ask him questions about our government, the media, uh, religion, higher education, um, what would he say about our institutions today? That's the premise of the book. It is a metaphysical book, but I think any, it's very highly rated uh, on Amazon. You should read the reviews, and that's um, what Jefferson might say if you know. If I had written it, I, I didn't write it, but
1: <laughs>
2: I completed it.
1: <laughs> okay, fair enough. Anything else or any place else?
2: Um, no, I just, just, just everybody just stay as informed as you can from the most objective sources that you can find and show up at the precinct meetings you know regardless of your party the parties can always be improved by um, better participation by well-meaning people
1: it's true i guess that's what i say get involved do something, do what you can. Anyway, I hope that the audience found this to be enlightening and informative, but if nothing else, to inspire you to, uh, you know, find your own sources of information and maybe think about your opinions. Um, while this was a U.S.-centric show, it probably applies to all democracies and, and probably folks in countries where you're aspiring to become a democracy or an emerging democracy as well. Uh, if somehow you're listening to me in North Korea, Sorry, we can't help you. Um, Maybe maybe you're jealous of having this dispute uh, or this problem internally. Everything's relative. Anyway, I thank you so much for joining us and lending us your time and your expertise and your insight. Good luck with the books. I think the metaphysical one on Jefferson does sound actually quite fascinating. It's like a sort of channeling, you know, Virgil or something, or you can talk to Aristotle or whatever. Um, I know it's a book. I know it's not real, but it would still be, still be, sounds interesting. So thank you very much for joining us in Garden Views. And folks, please uh, follow her stuff, buy the books, give them a read, give them a review, and rate and review this show. And we always appreciate your referrals as well. Uh, can't thank the audience enough for, for retweeting and sending me words of encouragement. So appreciate that. And you'll hear from us next time on Garden Views.
2: Thank you, Jeff.
1: Thank you.
0: Who are on the road must have a code that you can live by. And so become yourself because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well. Their father's hell did slowly go by and feed them on your dreams. The one they fix, the one you know by Don't you ever ask them why If they told you you would cry So just look at them and sigh